This is Quentin Smith from Shut Up and Sit Down, and you're listening to Heavy Cardboard for when medium cardboard just won't do. Heavy Cardboard, episode 83, Vasco da Gama. Coming to you from the Cape of Good Hope via Denver, Colorado, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We have a little bit of a special here for you. So we're your hosts today. I'm Edward. And I'm Ash. All right. So Amanda is under the weather. And by under the weather, I mean for a woman who normally gets up at 4 a.m., it's almost 11 a.m. on Wednesday, her day off, still in bed. So yeah, she's she's in bad shape. Um, blame me, which I'm going to blame Be- uh, Gen Con or airplane sure sure blame just thousands of people (laughs) blame the first sold out gen con ever right pretty much so yeah so that's why ash was uh, gracious enough to fill in because i'll be honest i don't want to do an hour-long show by myself that would be that's hard so i don't want to do that so thanks for filling in dude hey you bet yeah amanda is sicker than both you and i are or were right so yeah, pretty bad shape. She's a trooper for, uh, she's able to still go to work and function. Whereas when I'm sick, dude, I'm the world's biggest baby. Oh, oh, dude, I am horrible. <laughs> like just, I don't know how to function apparently. And yeah. apparently I also crave, I don't know why really bad TV. Like I hate reality TV hmm. as a general rule yet. I find myself watching like, like, uh, uh, just flip it, you know, the, the house flipping shows oh, or sure. I'll watch some just horrible wow. crap, dude. Huh. It's terrible. Oh, when I'm sick, it's it's so bad. That's too funny. And and terrible at the same time, well, right? Well, if you're going to indulge those, I guess it should be those when seldom times sick. when you're sick. Right. Although this year has been relatively healthy for me compared to last year, so I'm glad nice. to see that. Hopefully, nice. this got my con crud out of the way for the year, and I won't. You're get inoculated it. against it, and so now you're going to be, you know, you're vaccinated against the con crud uh, H1B1. Right. I hope so. Or con crud. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So, ugh. I'm I'm in the power through it camp, and so that's why I have next to me a bottle of cough syrup, a giant bottle of water to complement the cough syrup. And then coffee. And the coffee to overtake the taste of said cough syrup. Right. Exactly. So Gen Con. Uh, yeah, I figure I guess I ought to do a recap of it. I mean, I did the the Daily Diary sort of type thing. Uh, I didn't do as good of a job doing it daily as we did with WBC. With WBC, yeah. Those but, were fascinating. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And it seemed like folks enjoyed it. But the, the problem is, is A... I decided to tie one on on Friday night, so wasn't really in any condition to do <laughs> a uh, a daily diary at the end of that, and then maybe Saturday- a, maybe an after dark uh, episode. <laughs> it wouldn't have been good. No, <laughs> nobody wanted to hear me slur. Uh, but I did do one uh, for the last couple of days after I got home. So if you guys want a real detailed look at things, just go back and listen to those. But uh, I guess kind of a really big. 
high-level overview. Met over 300 listeners and viewers, which was just crazy. That's amazing. I really didn't know what to expect with Gen Con not being really our... Your home court, so to speak. Yeah, like Essen, I expect to be a, a pretty big deal for us in that respect. Sure. But Gen Con? Nope, didn't expect that at all. That's awesome. Brought 60 shirts, sold 55 of them. That was crazy. Yeah. And uh, big thanks to Clay over at Capstone Games for hosting me and putting up with me at the booth and taking up booth space because that was a tight booth. So definitely appreciate that. You're wearing the shirt to represent too. Well, that and it. He he made them similar to the material that we make our that we get our shirts. Oh, so they're the so, super comfy ones, right? Not oh, only that, I'm jealous. But as somebody who's gone from a two X L two XL to a large, I kind of kind of like the feel of a large shirt. Nowadays. Yeah, right. So that's that's pretty cool. Pretty pretty happy with it. It's that. fun to show off, right? So I figure. Instead of talking about, oh, hey, it was great. I met all these publishers and distributors. You guys don't care about that. You want to hear about the games. So let's talk about the games. Tell us about the games. All right. So the two highlights for me were being able to play the prototype of Kalimala, which is the game oh, coming yeah. out from ADC Blackfire. So Uli Blenemann, who spent a couple days here at HCHQ yep. before Gen Con, he had it with him. And unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to play it the day I was leaving. So he was gracious enough to have it with him at Gen Con, and it was me, uh, Clay, kind of watching it, but it was me, Uli, Uli's buddy, Kristoff, and our buddy, Adrian, from Mile High Game yeah, yeah, Guys. Yeah. I offered him to come on out with us and, and be a part of that. Oh, cool. So he was super excited. So this game, I'm going to talk... That sounded so cool when Uli was talking about it on the Genta stream. Yeah, it... It has this, it's really simple. I mean, there are nine different available actions that you can take, and mechanically, stupid simple. You put a disc in between two of the actions, and you take both actions. But the hook is that whenever somebody else wants to do that same action, they put their disc on top of yours, and they trigger both the actions, and then that refires you to be able to do both of the actions. Right. If you can't do those actions, then you draw cards, which are basically bonus actions that you can do in addition to your normal actions. Okay. And other than that, it's it's actually somewhat similar in a sense to the Vasco da Gama, uh, what we're going to be covering today, in that it has this one really, really clever mechanism that the rest of the game is based off of. Sure. So uh, those would, I say, be very similar in, in breadth as well as approach that, oh, wow, this is a really cool mechanism. Let's build the game around that. Cool. But that's going to be coming out at SM from ADC Blackfire. Super excited. Looking forward to that. And I would say one play, keep that in mind, but of all the other games that ADC Blackfire has put out, which includes Craftwagon and a host of other games, this is my favorite, even after just one play of nice. all of their games. So, okay. yeah, definitely enjoyed that. But... The winner of Gen Con, for me, personally, wasn't even at Gen Con outside of the first exposure room, and that is the City of Big Shoulders. Now, the designer had sent us a copy, a prototype, that felt like a really early prototype, just the, the component-wise and yeah. everything. So, it, it was a chore to break that out, and so I was like, eh. And then we saw him again at Origins, and he had this really 
highly polished prototype. And I was like, dude, <laughs> what's up with this? And we never got a chance to sit down and play it. But I made a point to do so at Gen Con. And oh my God, far and away, the best game I experienced at Gen Con. Saw, nice. played, heard people talking about anything. Yeah. This was far and away the best game. That's exciting. So I'm since, gonna, since it's billed as this kind of, you know, stock exchange, uh, city building, 18xx in a city, uh, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, I'll talk about it more here in a little bit. But yeah, definitely that was the highlight. So some other games. Obviously, I saw the new Civ and TI4 from Fantasy Flight. Oh, cool. I'll be honest. I'm interested in both of them. Am I ZOMG about either of them? No, but am I looking forward to trying them out? Absolutely. Sure. Something off the beaten path and not something that we would ever normally talk about here on the show. Kingdom Death Monster. They had a really big booth there. Yeah, Kingdom Death Monster is a big deal in kind of the role-playing story game circles. And the minis. So the minis, wow. Oh, yeah. I understand the appeal. They're they're really grotesque in a uh, just the forms, right? Sure. But the actual detail in the minis, wow. That's I understand why people go gaga over those. They I I saw them demoing uh games of it. It looked interesting if you're into that. It didn't it didn't appeal to me at all, but I can appreciate the sculpts and everything else that that sure. they made and that was really really impressive to see i had a overview of spirit island as i said i would definitely do while i was there yep um still not super stoked hmm. about it would i try it yes yeah the one real appealing thing that i saw though about it is the ai the invaders in which you're trying to fight off as in this co-op that is Spirit Island, they can have kind of scenarios. Now, obviously, Spirit Island, you're, you're spirit, so this is not a historical game right. by any stretch. However, they have historical scenarios that you can include, like the Prussians invade. Now, it's not huh. the actual Prussians or anything, but what they have on this card is it they take the types of actions that the Prussian army would have taken had they invaded this quote-unquote spirit island. Huh. I thought that was pretty fascinating. I was okay. like, okay, so if I were to try it, I would try it with these scenarios. Sure. With these historic scenarios in this fantasy game. And I thought, that's kind of a clever hook. Yeah, that's interesting. Kind of something more tangible to to hook people into your otherwise kind of uh, fantasy world building exercise. Right. Plus with it being a co-op, you know, I'm not super keen on co-ops, whereas I know you enjoy those far more than I do. Um, or, or at least somewhat more. I, I'm not predisposed to dislike them. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm middle of my needles right in the middle on co-ops. You know, I'm not bent one way or the other on them. So moving on then I saw sidereal confluence and headline, which should be arriving at HCHQ today. Cannot Ooh. wait to dig into both of those. Sidereal Confluence is supposed to be a big negotiation, trading, heavy, super, uh, has arms that go in all kinds of crazy directions. Uh, I had a lot of people tell me, look, you need to play this game. You need to check this out this game while we were at Origins. Finally yeah, you've been got a talking chance. about that for a while now. Yeah. 
finally got a chance to touch base with Zev over at WizKids. And so super excited. Check that out. Cool. Headline now. So this one is kind of in the Sherlock Holmes consulting detective type of game, except it's done with cards. I'll be honest. I, and it's 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 with, you know, a headline, i.e. newspapers. So it's kind of a cool concept. It appealed to me. And so even though here I am just saying that, yeah, co-ops, maybe not. These type of solving the puzzle as a group, like even the the exit games and stuff like that. Sure. Love those things. Okay. So really looking forward to checking that out. Cool. Agra from Quinta Games I saw, which is Michael Keller's first game by himself. He's done a couple other games with Andreas Odenol, and but this is his first solo design. So I got a chance to see that and I got a, a five-minute overview from Paul over at Quinta Games. Looks cool. He's going to be sending us the prototype, so we'll be able to take a look at that ahead of Essen to be able to give some first impressions. Nice. So folks can check that out. Looking forward to that. The Lisboa promo. I mean, I had to talk about it, right? (laughs) It's gorgeous. It really, really is pretty. Uh, So thanks again to Eagle Griffin, to Ian O'Toole, and to Vital Lacerda for for making that happen um, as a big surprise to us. So thank you. We're going to continue to make them available with the purchase of a shirt at all the cons that we go to this year. For those not going to cons, we're also going to make them available in our store in a couple of weeks. How? We're not sure. It's going to be dictated by how many we're actually able to get. So once I know that, we'll be able to figure out all the details. But I promise you guys will know as soon as we decide on that. Obviously, I saw the Roar and the Climbers, which were both super popular, and I'm pretty sure they both sold out at Gen Con. So that was cool, even though I left early Sunday morning. You were sitting right next to them at the Capstone booth. Right, and dude, the Climbers, the crowd that that game attracted was literally nonstop for all three days that I was there. Well, and rightly so. Uh, As you've always said, it's beautiful on the table. It's so different than most any board game that you're going to see from kind of the the current crop of games and just the tangibility of it is unsurpassed. I never saw Affliction, which is the the Salem Witch Trial game that I was really looking forward to checking out. Never saw it, so that was kind of a bummer. A couple that I did that I was tentatively excited to check out uh, that actually all three of them delivered in that, yeah, these look like legit, really solid games. Mini Rails and Tulip Bubble from the Moa Ideas guys. Oh, okay. Uh, we have copies of those coming and Whistle Stop from Bezier Games. Cool. I've heard nothing but positive when it comes to Whistle Stop and Mini Rails I've heard described as the most winsome-esque game that isn't a winsome game. Okay. So I, 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 I'm okay with that. I'm sure, yeah. And Tulip Bubble was kind of... Uh, a riff off of the Tulip Mania game. Right. So definitely looking forward to digging into all three of those. Cool. Cool. We also picked up Valletta, Lemuria, Yuraku, and Beer Empire, which I'll talk more about that here in a minute. Overall, though, I'd say it was definitely a much better trip than I ever expected, both from a personal standpoint, outside of getting sick, as well as for the show. I'm very, very glad I went. But I assure you, I will never, ever do that again alone. (laughs) It is just too big of a convention to do too much for the show standpoint, I'm saying, by myself. 
I will never go to a major convention by myself again. Huh. Can't do it. Just too much. So, yeah, Amanda is an absolute must going forward. So you mentioned miniatures. Right. And you saw Kingdom Death Monster. Right. As well as, and, you know, TI4 and sure. all that, right? And so that's reminded me of a question that I've harbored for a long time. Okay. Inquiring minds want to know. Or at least Ash wants to know. I want to know. How is it that you've not been bit by the miniatures bug yet? You've clearly been exposed to it. You've gone to all these conventions. You've seen the games. Uh, let's go down the checklist. You enjoy ancient history. Check. Yep. yep. You enjoy a finely crafted object. Check. Sure. You're a dab hand at cooking and have no fear of acquiring new skills, i.e. painting miniatures. We actually had a painting station set up down in the basement before the basement was finished. We just never actually followed through with it. I, the idea of painting them does somewhat appeal to me, but oh my God, am I terrible at it. That's just another skill to acquire. And so... And most of these games have a great deal of tactical depth going into them. And so I have to ask, how is it that you've not been infected by the miniatures bug? Were you wearing, you know, miniatures war game gloves and a mask to uh, to protect yourself? Or, you know, to Tony's off playing, you know, um, mid 19th century war games right now. How, what's how did this not happen to you, too? Honestly, it's just a aspect of the hobby that just never appealed to me. If a cube will suffice, I'm okay with a cube or a a wooden cutout like they have for the state officials in Lisboa. Sure, that's fine too. Um, I prefer or the standees in Hannibal. I I'm not super keen on standees. I actually do like the idea of the minis in Hannibal. However. I don't like the fact that you can't read the numbers clearly in the base because they're the same color on the mold, sure. right? So overall, I would say uh, function over form, number one. Right. And number two, I prefer wood over plastic or metal, which I guess pewter or any of those other metals, yeah, those whatever, it's those are fewer and farther between, especially when it comes to the games we're oh, talking yeah. about, whether it's resin, whatever. I just much prefer wood. And... It's a aspect of the hobby that, honestly, I just don't have time for. Sure. Or I should say, I don't make it a priority to make time for it. Yeah. It's not something that, eh, you know, it would be cool. I'd be okay with, like, trying to paint right. some and use them in games or whatever. But it's it's just nothing that's ever grabbed me. I mean, okay. different strokes for different folks, I guess, is the best way to put it. Just sure. not my cup of tea. Okay. Fair question, though. Now inquiring minds know. So the last thing I wanted to talk about with Gen Con was the uh, the meetup on Friday night. So we originally had planned to go to the Indianapolis City Market, which is kind of like North Market at Origins, a bunch of different uh, food vendors in one building. You have my attention. So we went there. We, we met up outside of the hall, and I don't know, there were 15, 20 of us thereabouts. Yeah, about 15 of us. And we get there and all the food vendors are closed, but they're open for another three hours. So all oh, I say all, but like all but one or two of the food vendors are closed. And I was like, really, man. So here everybody has gone up there. Great. Where are we going now, yeah. fellas? What's the new plan? Uh, all right. So we found a Irish pub to go to, had really good food and really good cocktails and beer, obviously whiskey as well. Uh, about five, 
seven more people or so showed up. Okay. So cool. Awesome. We hung out, had drinks, and then decided to go on a bit of a crawl to find <laughs> some place that was a little bit more hopping because this place was dead after dinner. And we found this German beer hall is really the best way to, I know to describe it. Off the beaten path, we were the only Gen Conners there. Huh. And we went in there, and there was a bar. looked like a really tall inside beer, like a German beer hall. Oh, cool. And then I heard this band from outside. So I go up a few steps, and us and all the fellas, uh, a couple of uh, John and uh, Iraq and Philip from Bordendice, they were there, and a, a handful of other, other uh, folks that were deciding to go on this drink crawl with us. We go upstairs, and all of a sudden... There's a beer garden with about 2,000 people. Whoa. Oh, well, okay, hi. So <laughs> You all, found the happening place. We did, which at 11 o'clock, sharp, it dies. Because there's a sound ordinance, because apparently sure, it's downtown yeah. and all this. And so the music had to stop. People started to filter out. And then we stumbled back, uh, got a ride back to the hotel, and had to get up early in the morning for a meeting. Recovered well and had a great day on Saturday. Nice. So, so there's that. So thanks, everybody, that came out to the meetup at Gen Con. That was a lot of fun. The one at Essen is going to be in order of magnitude larger. We had 100, 120 last year. I fully expect double that. We have the room reserved for 80. Again, that's going to be fun. <laughs> that's so exciting. It is. We're, we're actually going to have not only the room we have, but probably the whole outside as well. Yeah. So and I'm, anything that spills out into the room, too. Right. So when we get there on Tuesday, I'm actually going to go and tell them. So you remember last year. It's yeah. going to be a little bit bigger this year. So can we have more and make reservations? We'll Please. see how it goes. Um, if not, then we'll just have a really crowded room. So be it. Good problem to have. Moving on to this weekend, we have a local convention. Actually, it's kind of like two conventions merged into one. The Conclave of Gamers, which a friend of ours, Chad, had run for the previous few years. They merged with Beacon, which is uh, Sean, uh, the gentleman behind Mr. B Games, local publisher that we like to support. They have merged into Beacon slash Conclave. I think eventually it's just going to be Beacon, uh, but that's going to be going on this weekend, which is Labor Day weekend here in Denver. So if you're local in Denver, go check it out. If not this year, next year for sure. We'll be there on Saturday. We'll have t-shirts. We'll have the Lisboa promos, and we're going to be playing games. And you were talking about trying to come even too, right, Ash? Yeah, I'll be there on Saturday too, um, con crud notwithstanding. I'll stubborn through it. <laughs> I may need another bottle of cough syrup. And, and, and this is why people get sick at cons. Just saying. This is <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things. Right. And then after that, on Sunday, we have Tatanka Con, which our buddy Black Lamb, Dave, uh, part of the heavy cardboard uh, crew, but he lives about an hour, hour and a half south of us down near Colorado Springs out in BFE. Google that. Just not at work. <laughs> And he invited everybody here at the house and the Texas crew, which is uh, Brian, Lyndon, oh, and cool. Mo from oh, that's awesome. the board game group. Yeah, they're within striking distance. Right. They uh, they came up last year over Labor Day weekend, so we're definitely going to head down there on Sunday and play games all day and hang out with the boys. 
Uh, so it should be a good time. We're going to bring Asher. He's got a bunch of dogs there too. Huge area for him to go run around in and everything. So nice. that should be a good time on Sunday. So a couple of uh, news notes, I guess, here real quick. I just spoke to Yurun this morning, actually, from Splatter and got an update on Antiquity. And he said, well, not really much to report other than it's still on track for Essen. Everything's looking good. He's been preoccupied with focusing on that and making sure that everything is copesthetic and ready for Essence. So good cool. news there. And speaking of your own, this kind of came out of nowhere. He teamed up with Matt Leacock. Whoa. Pandemic Rising Tides. Okay. So huh. Splatter does Pandemic. Cool. All right. Maybe technical consulting. Yeah. I... I, I didn't pry too much, but he said basically they try and do a localized uh, area for wherever the champ the world championships are, and it's in the Netherlands this year. Okay. So it makes sense that cool. that's what they're trying to that's do. That's so, so cool to that, get to design something for your own backyard. Right. Well, not only that, but Jeroen's a bit of an omni-gamer anyways, so he will play, I mean, across the board anything. Yeah. So I imagine... Even though it's not in the splatter wheelhouse, it's in his wheelhouse. His personal wheelhouse, right. exactly. So I think that's cool. And I'll be honest, I was talking about maybe trying like a pandemic legacy or something. Well, hold on. Splatter meets pandemic. This might you be. You have my attention. This might be the one that we actually uh, try and review from the heavy gamer's perspective. I think this would be a perfect candidate for that. Cool. So here's how to contact the show. We love hearing from y'all and interacting with our fellow elephants. So if you'd like to reach out to us, just head on over to heavycardboard.com and you'll find our email and social media accounts. If you'd like to call and leave us a voicemail with the caveat that we may use it on the show, hit us up 720-675-8975. And don't forget about all the video content that we're producing over on the YouTube channel, Heavy Cardboard Vids. So you mentioned that the runaway favorite from Gen Con for you was the City of Big Shoulders, the yep. game about Chicago set after the Great Fire of Chicago. Yep. So the City of Big Shoulders, one of the nicknames for Chicago, it's from a poem by Carl Sandburg called, wait for it, Chicago. All right. So the game. I think it the best way for me to describe it, to put it in context, to give you guys a frame of reference is... Arkwright meets an 18xx without any track lane or a Euroized 18xx without any of the track lane. I think that's the best way to give you, try and get your head around okay. what it is. Okay, so let, let me see if I understand you just from that perspective. So no track lane, so I'm guessing that means the stock and stock market aspect and investiture uh, from 18xx. Right. And so... I'm guessing Chicago. Um, I'm thinking uh, early industrialization, meatpacking plants, and building up the city and investing in the factories and the housing and everything else to rebuild the city. Close. Okay. Um, so you're right. In it's all about. It's less about the city building. In fact, I would argue that there is none of building up the actual city. It's okay. All about building up the companies in the stock portfolio. Of these companies. Okay. All right. So it's all about raising your appeal because appeal is going to be turn order as opposed to order of the stock price. Okay. So cool. your appeal 
So that's kind of where I get a lot of, as well as you have workers and managers that are going to produce goods within your company. So they're not train companies, they're manufacturing companies. Right. And so with these companies, you're going to have a stock round just like you do in an 18XX that you're going to buy shares of a company. There's preferred shares. There's the president share. There's uh, you're allowed so much percentage of a company just okay. like in an 18XX. So when you start a company, there's a choice of these X amount of companies and all of them have their own little benefits or perks. Sure. And they produce different types of goods. There are four different types of companies so they produce four different types of goods but so when you when you invest in them if you're the president you get the president's share just like that you get the company charter and all of that but then you have to actually uh, potentially hire employees as well as managers to be able to run these lines within the company a la arkwright right and then you're going to be acquiring resources to then fire these lines. And by fire, I mean to get them to work right. and to produce the goods that you're ultimately going to sell. And what you sell those for is going to be based on the quality of the goods that you're selling, as well as the managers uh, that you have within the company, which will you know think of it as kind of the advertising that goes on in sure. Arkwright as well. One of the clever things, and one of the things that I was really apprehensive about with this game was the appeal order in which these companies operate. The most appealing company goes first. They get first choice of all these different goods. So there's, and they're all abstracted. They're different color cubes is essentially what they are. So input resources to then get output resources. Okay. The market is on a conveyor. And there are different uh, little holding areas. Some are worth, or you spend $30 if a good's in this one, 20 in this one, $10 from this one, from the company money. All right. right. However, those only refill between players' turns if they're empty. So if you, being the first player, leave one in the $10 one, (laughs) one in the $20 one, and one in the $30 one, well, whoever's going second, you only got a choice of three goods. And then if you buy any of those three goods, those are going to automatically replenish for the player in third place. Right. You don't like it? Change the situation. Raise your appeal. That should be your focus. Okay. And that's one of the things that Raymond, the designer, stressed to me when I I told him that was kind of my one apprehension about the game is... How that, easily that's manipulated. Exactly. And he said that, well... Yes, it has teeth, but it should only have teeth once of the five rounds. Because at that point, that hurts so bad, you do everything you have to do to raise your appeal to make sure... the other player. There you go, and make sure that doesn't happen again. Interesting. So then you take these input goods, and then you run your company. So instead of uh, laying track and doing all of that, you're just deciding which of the one or two lines that you're going to actually fire and, and produce goods. And then when whatever these goods are of the four different types, and I think they're like, it's like uh, clothing, it's it's agriculture, it's uh, farming, uh, meaning like animals versus uh, uh, livestock. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, and, and versus vegetables type stuff, as well as manufactured goods. When you set, when you manu- when you produce these goods, you then have a choice. You can either hold on to these goods and not make any money, or 
you can sell them. Well, there are different contracts in which you're going to be selling to depending on the type of company that you're or type of good that you're producing. So there are three different options at any given time in which you can sell. Okay. And these contracts basically uh They'll range from one to like five or six different goods to fulfill that contract. If you For every good that you sell, you get paid X amount of dollars. Okay. But if you completely fulfill that contract. You get or, a bonus or something. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So if you had partially filled it on your turn. And oh, then thank you, you finish it. I get the bonus because nice. I did it. And then those will obviously go in a conveyor uh, and, and move off of the. Kind of recycle. The, exactly. Yeah. At the end of the round. In addition to that, some of the companies can get, they have, I forget what the term is, but they have a spot on the company charter, some of the companies, in which they can have this, you can acquire this rule breaker by purchasing it uh, to be able to make your company a little bit better in some aspects, some rule breaker in the game. So the one thing that I haven't talked about are these workers, which are actually the same workers that they used in Arkwright. When appropriately he, when so. he produces the game he's like you know what these work well i'm just going to have them include these nice those workers that you have allow you to take certain actions to either help the player or help the company and these different actions are all player driven and what i mean the available actions are player driven on a given turn every player is going to get three of these they're going to keep one, they're going to discard one, and they're going to make one available as a worker placement action space. So with that, in a three-player game, you're going to have three worker placement actions that are that the players just put out. Okay. And in each round, they're going to put out more and more of those. And when players take those actions, the company is going to get paid because that's the oh, company's action. Oh, that's the company's action. Huh. And so that okay. money now goes back into the company as well cool you can also uh you can divest shares you can sell shares which that's going to affect your stock price sure and depending on how well uh whether you produce or when you produce goods and you sell them do you sell a hundred percent based on per share right do you withhold to give the company more <laughs> money or do you sell 50 percent like nice. in 1846 there's right. double and triple holding yeah yep all of that stuff so it really is an awfully clever and unique, because I've never seen an 18xx style game done in a Euro fashion mixed with this heavy Euro yeah. economic slash worker placement game. So it is a one of a kind that I have not seen, and I think it is going to be a smash hit. That's awesome. Now, That's really exciting. The downside it's not going to be available probably until Essen time next year. Okay. But it's a really highly polished prototype. And the reason I'm telling you guys this is Raymond's going to be sending us the new prototype of it. And we're actually going to be able to live stream it to be able to show it off. And we're not getting paid for it. We're not nothing like that. We're just doing it to help out a super tiny uh, brand new publisher and designer. With and a rock solid game. I wouldn't do it if I wasn't super excited about the game. It's exactly. that simple. So City of Big Shoulders, if it's not on your radar and you enjoy 18xx and or Arkwright type games, it should be on your radar. So definitely check it out. All right. You ready to talk some Vasco da Gama? I'm ready to talk some Vasco da Gama. All right. Published in 2009, designed by Paolo Mori, 
Artwork by the Mariano Ianelli, published by, of course, What's Your Game, as well as Rio Grande Games and a few others. Plays two to four players in 60 to 120 minutes. As far as availability and cost, it's good to see we've gotten back to our roots. <laughs> it's out of print. <laughs> However, you can find it falling from roofs or on the secondhand <laughs> market, 25 to 40 bucks a Roughly. Yeah, below below the stated, you know, kind of retail MSRP, price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as players and player counts, uh, I have played it five times now, two to four players. I've played it only at four players. All right. So what's going on in a game? In a nutshell, the game consists of action selection or worker placement with a sequencing twist. Well, players hire crew and captains buying projects which allow the building of ships acquiring help via influential characters of the time period and using those ships to open new commercial routes to Eastern Africa and India to earn money and glory or, you know, bonuses victory points. and victory points. Right. So the game takes place over five rounds. Place your workers out on the board along with the t- uh, sequencing. So you want to talk about the sequencing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because up till now, what you're describing is, you know, might be, um, Ho-hum. Might be construed as plain vanilla, Euro game, resource conversion, worker placement. But. And that but's a big but. This is a great big elephant but. (laughs) But this action sequencing changes the game fundamentally. When you place one of your workers, you assign it a number from 1 to 20. And so that'll determine the order that that worker is activated once all the workers are placed. So a la dominant species, everyone's going to place their workers out there. And then after everyone has placed their workers, then they're going to trigger in a predetermined order. Right. Except unlike dominant species, where it goes from the top of the menu to the bottom, uh, these actions are in the programming that you set. Do you you're, you want to launch your expeditions first thing for your first action this round? Great. Give it a low number. You don't want to launch them till the end after you've been able to hire some crew, get a, get a couple ships, and grab some extra money from the special characters. Great. Give it a high number. So your own personal workers are in the sequence that you determine. Being, provi- being influenced by what numbers are available. What everybody else is taking. Right. Oh, Edward took that 16 that you needed? Too bad. Now you have to choose high or low, and frequently in the game... Uh, gaps will form in that sequence from 1 to 20, where later on, if you kind of waited to set one of your workers, your options might be an 18 or a 5. And the reason that matters is because wherever there is a, a certain threshold at which at some point, some of those are going to be free. And from that point forward, all numbers equal to or higher to that number will be free, whereas everything else below that number is going to cost money. Exactly. That special action, it, we called it the special captain in the game. It's the same shape and piece as the other captains, uh, goes on one of the numbers uh, somewhere in the uh, 5 to 10 range. It's pre-programmed from a deck of uh, a deck of Vasco da Gama cards that set uh, set where this piece goes. So you know where it's going to be. So you know its range. That's known. Within a range go- of plus to minus three. Exactly. And you know the distribution of those cards, a, a minus one, two, and three, a plus one, two, and three, and an extra two on both sides. But 
You know where it is now. You don't know where it's going to be when your actions are resolving. You don't know how much you're going to pay for that five that you put out there. Are you going to pay one or two? Or are you paying the full five or six uh, for that action? Are you paying through the nose to, to get that action first? However, if it ends up being more than either you can afford or that you choose to afford, there is a little bit of a kiss on the neck. In a sense that, okay, you just forfeit, you forfeit the action and you get some amount of money, whether it's one, two or three Reyes coins in the game uh, to basically forfeit one of your four, possibly five actions. Right. And so with only four workers, potentially five, depending on which of the special characters you ask for help. Those four workers, man, if you have to forfeit one, that's tough. That's That's five percent of your game right there. Right. Because you figure five rounds, four workers, 20 actions, maybe some additional with that extra character. But other than that, you basically have 20 actions in which to do better than everybody else at the table. Exactly. At the end of those five rounds, whoever has the most victory points wins. All right. Complexity wise, I just don't feel like there's really a whole lot. This is pretty basic and pretty run of the mill as far as Euro resource conversion worker placement outside of that sequencing. I feel like this game checks in uh, right in the middle of the middle weight, um, you know, from the rules, you know, the length of the rules, the complexity of the rules, the complexity of the actions that you're resolving. Uh, all of that is standard medium weight. But again, a great big but. I feel like this game punches above its weight with that action sequencing and having to pay a cost for that action sequencing, too. Right. And having to account for that extra cost or potential extra cost and the mitigation of that unknown factor. So, I mean, now we're getting into the planning aspect of it, and I feel like that's where really this game, all of its weight comes from this aspect. Exactly. I agree. I agree with you. I feel like most of the complexity comes from that action sequencing. However, there's an aspect of the game we haven't really detailed. There's a video if you want if you want the full walkthrough. But the way that the expeditions uh, advance northward along the coast of Africa, where you place your ship when you're putting it uh, onto the board, I feel like there's a good deal of kind of calculation there of how long do you want that ship out there earning you, be it points or money, when at the end of each navigation round and where that ship goes in the sequence, which line is going to get filled up and advance ships. Which is going to give you bonus victory points. points. Right. But then you also have to take into account that if it's just hanging out there and not scoring you any points or getting you any income from being out there on the board, you want it to eventually go away so that you can get that captain back. Recover those sunk costs and resources. Exactly. And so it, it, it really is that level of planning and foresight that it requires you to have. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're betting, anticipating what other players are going to do in in a sense that they're going to assist you because once that row at that landing at a certain landing area is full, it's now going to score and advance further up that coast. Yeah. So you, you want the help of the other players, but you have to anticipate what it is they're doing based on the crew they've taken, the projects 
which become the ships that they want to build right. and their availability of actions on the navigation to be able to ship or launch those ships out there on that navigation track. So I feel like there's there's a lot of anticipation and planning that totally goes into this game. Sure, I agree. The interaction is definitely in playing everyone else's game, recognizing when you are and are not uh, competing for the same resources, and also then setting your own pieces into the expeditions in an advantageous way to yourself. To hopefully helps you more than the other players, obviously. Exactly. And that's assuming that you sequenced all of your actions right and actually have the crew to launch the ship to send the expedition. And, oh, I forgot to put a worker on the expedition. Plan better, Ash. Yeah. Plan better. Yeah. All right. However, on the flip side of this, and I think it's on the flip side, or is it? So the luck and random factors, usually the more luck and randomness that is in a game the more that diminishes the weight of the game in a in, sure chess regard- being the example of zero luck heavyweight game right so you have the vasco da gama tiles that get flipped after actions are sequenced that's going to be the main randomness so you got that minus three to plus three so you know the range but you don't know the exact number so you can't with a hundred percent certainty plan out your how you're going to spend all your money right because there's more tiles than there are rounds and so even though by round four or five you've seen the other tiles that have come before and you can begin understanding what's available there's it's still not a certain thing exactly and not only that but you have what ship projects come out in what order and what crew members are drawn from the bag that are available in a given turn maybe one of the colors is more scarce than the other that you desperately need So how would you say that negatively impacts the weight of the game? I don't think so, because it it's not like a dice roll where we're each getting a different random result. We're all dealing with the same random result. So it's universal across the entire game. Exactly. Or across all the players within the game. Our knowledge, the knowledge of trying to predict that is effectively perfect. And it all comes down to I feel like. The randomness is more expressed with how close are you running to the knife edge of the game? Oh, how you, much are you going to gamble with that? Or are you going to play it safe? Right. Do you have a, a buffer of cash to where you can afford it going in the wrong direction? And now these actions are going to cost you more money? That's up to you. But again, you don't like it? Plan better. Right. As far as the game length, I feel like it... it really nails what it doesn't overstay its welcome, which is the big negative. I feel like that would be here if a game overstayed. I agree. Uh, It's just the right length. It should be. There's a lot of games that economic building games where you feel like, oh man, I just wanted one more turn to do X. And it almost feels like the game was artificially shortened to create that tension. Whereas in this game, the length is exactly as it should be. It is no longer or shorter than the game should be, I feel like. And there's plenty of room within game development to manipulate that. And so I think they hit the bullseye right on with game length. Yep. As far as getting it, I think it's it basically a full round. And, and you pretty much have it. You've seen everything that the game has. Now, seeing the implications of the sequencing uh, is going to give something for players to chew on. Throughout the game, especially in your first game, you're going to see, oh, wow, I didn't realize that my ships were going to, uh, you know, that I placed in round one are still going to 
potentially be impacting what's available for where you can launch your ships in round four, for instance. Right. But outside of that, I think mechanically, inside of the first round, you're gonna you're gonna have the game down. I agree with you in principle, but uh, my answer is a little different. I feel like it's two full rounds for you to appreciate the full effect of the action sequencing. Oh, I can hold over some things and take a different sequence of actions next time. There's no reason that I have to go ships, then crew, then actions, then navigation. You know, you can do it differently, and there's the freedom within the game to do that. And you can not send your ships to navigation on a given round to where you load up and you send two or three to the same landing with one action. It's an efficiency of of use. Greater efficiency of actions. Exactly. Um, The colonists come to mind with that. Yep, exactly. Squeezing, you know, squeezing more blood out of that stone. Um, (laughs) But on the flip side, I feel like it may take uh, maybe three or four rounds uh, to appreciate, as you said, the navigation and the way that ships kind of stick around in there. Um, Ships in the navigation are almost like an engine for points or money or both, depending on which projects you select and then ultimately launch and where they go and how long they stick around. And so that didn't dawn on me, I think, until round four of the game. I realized, oh, wait a minute, there's an engine here. It just doesn't look like a resource engine, but it's here nonetheless. So where would you say overall the game falls weight-wise? I feel like the game is uh, medium heavy and medium from the kind of superficial veneer aspect of the game and with that extra lean on the heavy side from the the kind of uh, grinding gears at the heart of this game. I would tend to put it lighter than that. I would put it a solid medium, not medium heavy. But again, we're arguing semantics. I mean, it's really not a big deal. Sure. But I, I get what you're saying as far as the the impact, understanding the impact of the sequencing being putting this above a any plain Jane worker placement game. Right. I think that's fair. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the components. I'll be honest, man. There's really not a lot to say. And I think that's okay because it's solid cardboard. It's thick, chunky cardboard. Oh, yeah. And solid wooden bits. It's it's what I would expect from a Euro nowadays and what's funny is this game's from way back in 2009 and the production values i think are what people are now paying quite a bit more for than they were back then yep you know all the placards are thick double-sided chipboard um you know the money is thick all of it's the linen finish kind of stuff and uh you know, great big chunky bits for your workers. Sure, the captains are tiny. They're a little tiny. But they need to fit onto a small ship. And I respect the fact that the game's not a table hog. Sure, you have small bits, but this game, I mean, this game could fit on a reasonable sized coffee table. I was just going to, I was thinking coffee table. And in our, exactly. in our live stream last night, we actually didn't even have to switch camera views. We, yeah. and we had it zoomed in pretty tight. There was no tableau view or tableau cam because everything fit on the main camera. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's definitely tidy in that respect. It is. And I think there is something to be said at the component quality in that there is nothing remarkable in a sense that there's nothing that we should be highlighting in a negative light. Yeah, there's no there's no warnings or caveat emptor here. All of it is uh, solid, high-quality Eurogame stuff. Yep. And I appreciate, uh, I feel like I have to give props to the game development uh, publisher for making a 
a table efficient game, I recognize that there's hard work therein that we don't see other than, wow, this game doesn't take up a lot of table space. Isn't that <laughs> nice there, for a there, change? There are very much uh, plenty of games on the opposite end of that spectrum. Exactly. As far as the box size, it's identical to other What's Your Game titles. It's uh, 11 and 3 quarters by 11 and 3 quarters by 2.8 inches, which is 30 by 30 by 7 centimeters. Right. I feel like it's the standard nominal 12-inch square box. Yep. That's pretty much exactly what it is. Yeah. Graphic design-wise... I feel like it's it's pretty basic, but it's clear and it's consistent across the entire game. Yeah, all of the art is internally consistent. All of it does the job of communicating information and communicating the theme or the ostensible theme of the game of Portuguese mercantile exp- exploration and expeditions to Africa. My question, though, is do you feel the wind through your hair? I do feel the wind through my hair, but we'll get to that in the fun part. All right. So as far as the rule book clarity and quality, so I have a confession to make. I com- I've played this game five times now. Still blue rule. Still. Hey, it the- happens to the best of us. And it's not even the rule book's fault because it's written very clearly in that it's just, I'll be honest, I was taught it maybe not perfect and that just influenced my ability to read apparently yeah there there's always that trouble of reading something you've already read or you think you've already read and your eye kind of glosses over it kind of like hearing a podcast the eighth or ninth time after you know i ran the disposal the first three times now i'm hearing it again and i'm still not hearing it because my brain thinks i've already heard this thing yep so i gotta be honest the rule book is really clear except there are two ambiguities that i wanted to highlight and that. these are minor, too. They, they really are. So for the bonus of when taking a crew member, the wording, and I think this is from a, a poor uh, choice of words from the translation, that it makes it seem that you choose a worker from the bag, where in, in actuality, it's just a random draw. If you choose the random draw versus picking them out of the window. Correct. And the second thing is the timing of when you place your extra worker for taking the man well. Uh, character tile it's not as clear as it could have been but outside of those two things and again the rule that i got wrong in the live stream which affects uh scoring that's on me that's not on the rule book it's crystal clear in the rules and in the example for the rules yeah gee just i thick-headed i guess so no I, no outside of those two things though i would say overall rule book well done and I think. props uh props to what's your game for uh Crafting, again, the hard work that goes into making a good, concise, clear rulebook. Thank you. So as far as setup, teardown, teaching, and learning, go watch the video with the caveat that I got one of the scoring rules wrong, so boo on me. All right, let's get into the heart of it. So what makes the game fun? I'll start with the obvious. This game is completely run-of-the-mill. Until. Except for essentially two things which is that action sequencing, which is the main hook of this game, and the way the navigation works in the escalation up the coast. Right. Those two things make the game what it is and make it feel special, whereas every other aspect of the game would be completely... I agree completely. The action sequencing is kind of a hard one to get your head around um it seems like it should be easy oh let me go get a ship 
oh, let me go get some crew. Let me get some extra money, and then I'll send my expedition. Except that the way the kind of um, follow-on effects of mismanagement or coming to the party second or even third and not getting those projects or workers that you really needed, how those follow-on effects ripple through the rest of the rounds affects your action programming for the rest of the game. And we had a case in last night's game where both you and Mike both thought, okay, we're going to be able to get the projects that we wanted. And then Yoink. Be- and then because of the choices that I had left in the sequencing, it was almost a throwaway action for me, but I took a lower number to place down there on the ship projects to then be able to, I didn't anticipate being able to snipe the projects right. ahead of you guys. However, because of that randomness in that range of the Vasco da Gama tiles on where that free action marker was going to slide, we knew the range, but it moved to the far end of that range. And all of a sudden that action fell into your lap. And I was like, oh, well, hello there. Exactly. But to me, the strength of the game is that though that random thing fell in your lap, uh, the outcome of the game didn't hinge on it. No, I agree. And on top of that, you guys had the option, had you chosen and had you had the foresight to choose a lower number sure. so that nobody could snipe you. We so, could have run the risk. Yep. We chose not to. Partly, uh, be, you know, uh, human beings being what we are, risk I'd, run the, I'd run the risk earlier in the game and got bit. And so, therefore, didn't want to get bit a second time, potentially. Right. And so it was a vital, vitally important action for you. But at the same time, if it, if that number, if that sequence number comes too early, compared to where the first, uh, the free action marker is, it gets pro, uh, cost prohibitive to be able to take that action. And then all of a sudden, you went from, well, I might not get the ideal one, but at least I could do something. To you I get can't. nothing, right? And you like it. I mean, exactly. yes, you would get an extra. Uh, one or two coins, but you lose the actual ability to take the action. So yeah, that that running that, as you say, the knife edge yeah. of where do you want to fall and how close do you want to run it on that knife's edge is really the appealing thing about this game. I agree completely. Um, there's a game design article by James Ernest from Cheap Ass Games, and in it he talks about how the basis of all of his designs and his designs are a lot of math and all that stuff. But the basis of it is one path in the game is slow and steady, slow, steady, boring, and it just kind of agglomerates through the game. The other is the wild roller coaster and the kind of fun inherent choice of do you go risky and maybe win, you know, win big because of your risk and maybe crash hard because of your risk, or do you go slow and steady? Some games only let you choose make that choice between the path in an entire game. This whole game I'm running slow and steady or risky. Or maybe within a round of a game, this round I'm going to run slow and steady or risky. But in Vasco da Gama, that's every single worker placement. Every single one you're choosing, oh, am I going to go risky on this one or am I going to go slow and steady? And 
the way that the action, we've been calling it the action sequencing. And it's funny in the video, Matt was saying, I don't know what to call this. And that's good. You know, this doesn't have a name. It doesn't have an, a familiar label within the rest of the board gaming. Like um, a worker placement purview. or whatever. Exactly. Right. This action sequencing to me feels like a wild economic market. Sometimes it's a bull market and we're all riding high and sometimes it's a bear market and we're just getting slammed, but we're all in the market together. And so how we react to that, I feel like is the, a lot of the fun, but it also kind of piles extra uncertainty onto that choice of slow and steady, or am I going to risk it? And as you go along, those choices can become easier easier or harder based on previous actions and previous choices you've made. Meaning if you're now flush with cash and a lot of these actions are going to be really expensive to be able to take, well, if you're flush with cash because you you squirreled that money away, well, hey, guess what? You're prepared for it, the bad market. Exactly. It's a bear market for everyone not named you. Exactly. And for me, you asked before if I feel the wind in my hair. And in a way I do, I feel the wind in my hair in Lisbon, launching mercantile expeditions to a place 4,000 miles away. I feel the kind of um, hands-off financier uh, position of launching these risky expeditions and having to kind of hedge my bets. Wait, and you're you're saying that shipping back in the 16th century or 15th, 16th century was risky? Yeah, I mean, age of sail mercantile shipping, an inherently risky venture. I feel like the action sequencing and the variation in the cost of those uh, sequenced actions does a great job of, very abstractly, simulating these inherently very risky ventures. You know, the Phoenicians didn't invent uh, shipping insurance for nothing. Uh, you know, this is, geez, the Cape of Good Hope is infamously, has infamously bad weather. You know, ships foundering on the way around Africa, 4,000 miles away from home. There's no help is coming, guys. You're you're on your own. You're on your own. Yep. Right. And so is my investment. My investment's on its own, too. And so I feel that the the game here, in a very abstract way, and let's be honest, all Euro games, all the games we're playing are abstract, even down to, you know, advanced squad leader and whatever else. Because last I checked... You ain't got bullets whizzing by your head. Exactly. You're not wearing uh, soaked, soaking wet, freezing socks in ankle deep mud, like you said, with bullets overhead. Right. And so, yes, it's very highly abstracted, but I feel uh, this kind of very tense pressure to launch expeditions, get them out there, get them out there now, seize the opportunity but you also have to make sure that you protect yourself and kind of guard your economic flank, so to speak. And I feel like the theme here is as much as you want there to be with this. So I, I understand others that are like, wow, it's completely pasted on. I see that if you want to look at it that way. Sure. I also can see the way you choose to look at it that, hey, this is a risky adventure this is a risky endeavor exactly and we're we're financing them so well m give yourself the best opportunity that you can to capitalize on it but you know what doesn't matter sometimes it just doesn't work out yeah sometimes uh the brakes don't fall your way and so no i don't feel the wind on my hair 
in the ship uh, sailing up the east coast of Africa, but I do feel the wind in my hair standing in Portugal waiting for that big wagon of gold to come back. So on the flip side of things, I think the best way I know how to do this is just present it as a question to you, Ash. Okay. Is how much replayability is there? Not from things that are easily solved, but is the main sequencing of actions enough to carry an otherwise unremarkable game? So I think so. I think this game has uh, six to ten replays in it, depending on, you know, uh, where on the skinny end of the curve you are. You know, the Skylers of the world, you know, will get this game. They'll understand the game before they start playing. They'll understand all the abstractions and they'll get it. And, you know, maybe there's only three plays for them. But for folks like me, I feel like there's nine or ten plays in this game, partly because the action sequencing is an inherently mm, gnarly problem to solve, but also because... A an otherwise familiar aspect of Eurogames engine building is presented in an unfamiliar setting and an unfamiliar abstraction. You know, if you said there's engine building here, okay, great. I know what I need to do with engine building. I need it to. I don't math. I don't math out my turns. But you know, if you present it that way, okay, great. We can approach it from that aspect. But the game doesn't say with you know flashing neon sign here's your engine building please build this engine as you would an engine building and so kind of coming to those realizations as you play i feel like there's more more plays within it as you as you come to see these unfamiliar things as a familiar thing simply presented in a very uh ingeniously different way and something that we discussed in our post-game discussion last night of the game was, does every game need layer upon layer upon layer of depth for there to be replayability past a handful of games? A handful being three or four games, right? right? And I would say that no. I would argue that that not every game needs to be able to withstand 60, 70, 80 plays because let's face it. The people that are doing that nowadays are the exception to the rule. Sure. I'm not saying good, bad, or otherwise. I'm just saying cult of the new is a real thing for a reason. So my question is really... How much staying power do you need it to have, and does it have that? Exactly. And I think it does. I think this I has, agree. I think this has more staying power than any, pretty much most other midweight Euro games. Take any other kind of midweight Euro game, and I feel like this has more... Uh, technical staying power, but also more kind of exploratory staying power where as you play the game, you're discovering new things. And then as you're discovering them, you're kind of crunching them if you're that kind of player and squeezing, you know, squeezing all the efficiency you can out of the game. I don't know that I would agree that I would say it has more, but I would put it on par with a game Take like a Rococo for the deck building sort of type thing that that has in it. Okay. I would say it's on par with the depth of that. And to be honest with you, I'm okay with that. Not sure. every game has to be, you know, Pax Renaissance to where, you know, it's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. It doesn't need to be. And this doesn't try to be. And that's okay. Exactly. Uh, I think they swung for midweight. Uh, they hit midweight and they buried it. Uh, straight through the bullseye to the other side. Now, on the negative side, outside of that sequencing and the advancing of the ships up the coast, 
Dude, there is nothing absolutely zero remarkable about any other aspect of the game. So you have to ask yourself, is that enough to carry the game for you individually? Now, I think Ash and I have both clearly stated that for us, it is. But I can tell you that that is not going to be the case for, for everybody. Everyone. Sure. But for 30 bucks? Yeah. For, for the amount of game that you get in this, as long as you go into it with your eyes open thinking about, okay, this is really the hook for the game. Yeah. Then and that still appeals to you, then I think you're going to be totally happy with this. I agree. It's worker placement with a couple of really clever twists, and there you go. Yep, and it doesn't claim to be more than that. So if that sounds appealing, there you go. So to touch on scalability here, now I realize that, Ash, you've only played it for a player. Right. But even so, I feel like you can at least make an educated guess as far as the scalability, because the only things that change... The worker placement spots that are available, instead of there being five in a three-player or in a two-player game, there's three. In a uh, three-player game, there's four. So it's tighter sure. as far as the number of locations in which you can place workers. And in addition to that, the characters that are available, they're all available, but a couple of them or one or two are unclaimed based on player count. That's it. Mechanically, that's the only scalability in the game. Okay. I find two-player... Less compelling okay. for the simple fact that that action sequencing, it's it's a zero-sum game in that I know, okay, you're only going to be able to take one in between my actions. Exactly. So it's, it's just less exciting to me, whereas at three and four, I really, really enjoyed this game. Whereas at two, honestly, I'm looking for another game at two because even though I really enjoy that action sequencing... I want that competition. That tension is a lot of the fun in that. Right, because the 1 to 20 doesn't go away. It doesn't change. It doesn't scale in that respect for player count. Exactly. Uh, I would infer that the the best play count is 4, with 3 being um, you know, not, not nearly as tight. And uh, go ahead. Well, no, no. Uh, on that note, I wouldn't say that it's not as tight because the worker placement location, there, there are fewer choices. So it is. But Sorry, you're talking I, I on misspoke. the sequencing. Uh, just just in uh, I'm in my mind, I'm focusing just in the middle part of the board, the Vasco da Gama action sequencing part where Matt remarked at at four players. Oh, gosh, those numbers go a lot faster than in a three player game. And to me, that's a lot of the fun um, in our uh, live stream. Mike and I came to a point where. The only numbers left for our last worker was 20 and 5. And I had I had the choice, you know, clear as day staring me in the face. Go early, pay more, or go as late as you can go, but it's free. Right, exactly. And so I chose to risk it. Whereas I can see that in a three-player game that that uh, kind of watershed decision is absent because, like you said, not as many of the numbers are taken and so you're not forced to the to run the knife edge. You can choose to run the knife edge, but in our four-player games, every round someone is forced to run the knife edge, and I love it. So if you can see that coming, I right. feel like... So, you anticipate it. Right, so plan or anticipate better, right? Well, yeah, and to me, that's some some more of the depth of the game. You know, first you figure out action sequencing. Okay, I need this, this, and that to run a thing. 
then you figure out, okay, I need to play everybody else's game. Matt has a bunch of the priests, so I'm not going to compete with him over there. So it's okay if I go after him. Now you're going to play your game, everyone else's game, and the third dimension of, okay, where exactly do I need this action sequencing to go? I know I need a higher number because it needs to go before that one, but where exactly is it going? And it's so easy to get lost in your head and forget and, and get into playing other people's games and then forget, oh, wait a minute, I needed crew. What am I doing? Oh, uh, no. Yeah, and so there's uh, that's where I feel like there's fun of juggling uh, these different kind of data points of they're mostly knowable things and... Uh, keeping it all together uh, as you go forward and make your picks in a timely fashion. What is adventure but an inherently risky venture to go someplace new that no one else has really been before? I feel like I hear the Star Trek theme in the background. Be it Exploring space, colonizing a new continent, or sending out merchant shipping to the far reaches of the world to bring back wealth and glory to yourself. Vasco da Gama captures this inherently risky venture and could easily be rethemed to some other risky venture, oil drilling, space exploration. But here, it's the age of sale. You have to run the knife edge of a market economy, hedge your bets, and make sure that you can still launch your ships and hopefully get there first. Maybe everything doesn't go your way, and you have to go to plan B, or plan C, or uh, improvise. As with the Age of Sail exploration, not everything goes your way, and you do have to improvise and make it up as you go, but ultimately, but ultimately makes a fruitful and profitable venture in the end. One being throw it off the roof, and six being a Hall of Fame game with the spread in between three is kind of the breaking point where it's not me, it's you, and on up. So for me, Vasco da Gama, we don't do half points here, Vasco da Gama is a solid four. I think it's a great game that does what it sets out to do, and to me, uh, a highly abstracted game that nevertheless is still thematically strong and has staying power both in the exploration of what the game is doing, but also in the technical aspect of squeezing out the efficiency of your actions. Edward? I too give this a four based on the simple fact that the game does exactly what it sets out to do just like what you said the fact that it doesn't try to be more than it is it doesn't try to be all super tricky in things that it doesn't do well it's a very eh game with one really badass mechanic and i feel like that's enough to give it the amount of plays that i would want to to give it for the amount of money that i'm investing in this game does that make sense? That makes perfect sense to me. And that's Vasco da Gama. All right, dude. So, well, we're getting a third mic. We're getting a, another cloud lifter. We're getting another boom arm and all this. So that, Well done, patrons. So that you can't use Sweater Mike, uh, Matt, and others 
can be the occasional third seat, third chair on the show. So that was probably the most, um, not complaint, but the biggest suggestion that folks have is, unfortunately, Amanda... And you mean from the survey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, We've had almost 600 uh, responses on the survey, which is fantastic. That's stellar. That's amazing. I'll be honest, I expected 100, maybe. So thank you to everybody that has taken the time to give constructive criticism and excellent feedback. And, And feedback and, you know... That's an amazing number for the number of downloads you have. I mean, I don't know what the response rating is, but uh, statistically speaking in the corporate world, if you're getting 5% feedback, then you're doing really well. At any rate, anyone who responded to the survey cares enough to tell you what they think. Right. And I and we absolutely appreciate it. So that said, we are going to have a, on occasion, third host. Uh, third chair onto the show so it's not that amanda's getting replaced amanda's sick that's that's it so uh it's still going to be me and amanda for the majority of the shows with the occasional ash thank you i'm flattered no truly i I, i'm excited i think you bring a lot to the show i think it's it's a benefit both for the show as well as everyone listening out there well and with the third mic it means that you and amanda won't be sharing a microphone during the discussion part Everyone will have their own microphone. It'll be tuned in and it won't be kind of the, okay, let's play hot seat now. Exactly. So yeah, big thanks to all our patrons uh, for making this uh, possible because otherwise we wouldn't be able to afford it. So that said, um, that's it. We will catch you all next week with Amanda being back. Um, Not sure what we're going to be reviewing next week. Going to be really exciting because I don't know. Yay, it'll be a surprise (laughs) to me too. Exploring the unknown. Right? Hey, kind of keeps in theme with things, right? So, Ash, thank you very much, my brother. Thank you. I'm genuinely flattered every time that you ask me to come on the show. I really appreciate it. And all I hope to do is to... uh, surpass your expectations for whatever random ad lib things that I might happen to fall out of my head that you have, you have plenty of fans out there yourself. So I think it's going to be a, a welcome addition to the show. All right. So on behalf of myself and Amanda, we'll catch you all next week. Thanks for listening everybody. Goodbye y'all. Bye.